Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show. After, um... Wait, we have back-to-back episodes. It's like Formula One. We have these back-to-back race weekends. Well, you know, if you're if you're going to go there and you're so proud of us for having back-to-back episodes... <laughs> We've done two in a row! You know, Formula One, it's a big deal for them to do triple headers. We're not even going to make it that far because you're going to be gone next week and we won't have an episode so yeah way to brag about that but formula one's off next week so everybody's gonna well, at get least a break. there's that everybody's gonna get a break <laughs> at least there's that i was really happy that formula one is going to celebrate my birthday by taking the weekend off okay not not a birthday present race no <clears throat> no they're doing a pre-birthday and a post-birthday birthday race oh so they're sandwiching they're sandwiching a weekend off so that i can go celebrate my birthday okay see if, if that's what works for you that's what i'm going with okay i talked to lewis he said you know happy birthday and then he said you know we're definitely taking stop this calling me how did you get this number <laughs> okay <laughs> we there's a court order um <laughs> there the rumors of the court order are highly highly exaggerated how did you get this number i have friends (laughs) he was in our offices don't you remember the episode yes he was here he visited he hung out it was really awesome it was kimmy that canceled out us well that's because kimmy's english isn't the best and he was a little worried that he'd mumble too much but you know, Lewis was here, Toto came. It was quite the party. No, Toto did not come. Bono came. Bono did come. Well, Lewis is Bono, not the Bono. I mean, if Bono showed up, <laughs> it'd be a whole different story. We'd have a completely different episode if Bono showed up. Yeah, we wouldn't do much. Um. <laughs> But no, I'd love, I, I, you know, truthfully, when you really sit down and think about like the stars of F1 that you'd really like to hang with, like, you know, we're coming up on a political season and there's mm-hmm. a metric that people use <clears throat> about who would you have a beer with. Mm-hmm. And I think about this in the wee hours of the morning, like what F1 personality would I want to like spend some time with? Like who would I want to have lunch with other than Ross Braun? Because seriously. Yeah. I want to have lunch not, with Ross Not Martin. Not just have lunch. I want a tour of his garage. Okay, there's that too. Um, so I'd love to, like, I, I think the Braun family and us, we could be buds. Like, we'd bond. I'd cook them dinner. They'd be really impressed. It would be awesome. The one I really want to, like, have a beer with. Jensen Button. Well, yeah. There's also Jensen. Mark Webber. Could you stop? Pete Bonington. Yeah. I would love to buy that man a beer and just sit down and chat. Like, tell me how you keep your cool. How do you answer Lewis's questions and, like, keep him on track? And how do you keep him focused when he's losing it? When he's losing it. How much <clears throat> of the stuff that you talk about is, like, for the air? Because you know Lewis plays mind games. Like, mm-hmm. that man plays the games. And you know it. So... I want to I pick Pete Bonington's brain. 
And then I want to, you know, like, I'd love to hang out with Jensen. I think Jensen would be a cool guy to have a beer with. Um, Martin Brundle. He's another one I'd like to have a beer with. I'd really like to have a beer with Martin Brundle. And Johnny Herbert. Oh, the two of them? Oh, can Mm -hmm. you imagine the rounds? I mean, I just could see the two of them up, you know, like, who's got the next round? Mm -hmm. Both of them. Would love that. Like, we should make that happen. Their people should call... Do we have people... Unpaid interns that we fired. Oh, darn it. <laughs> Why did we fire the unpaid interns? Because they wanted to get paid. Dang it. <laughs> it's an honor to work on our show. You should want to be, do this for the notoriety. Yeah. Something like that. Anyway, uh, I don't know. Did you see the race today? Yeah, you know, I I was going to say that those, those new Ferrari colors that they ran, kind of spiffy. Well, you know something? I disagree. You didn't I, Well, I loved I mean, them. unoriginality right there for you. Well, the thing is, I loved them in the still shots. Mm-hmm. Like, in the garage, that rich, deep red. I went, Ooh. It was fantastic looking. Like, I'd want a car that with, color. With, with the numbers that looked like they were hand-painted. Right. I loved i would want a car that color i mean it's that Mm -hmm. beautiful deep burgundy rich blood red loved it Mm -hmm. loved it i was noticing that when they were out on track it didn't read they blended with the tarmac it's such an a deep red Mm. that it blended with the tarmac and you know one of the things i noticed as we were watching the snippets of the race that were not red flagged (laughs) um was the pink racing points, they popped. Yeah. The orange McLarens, they popped. I'm used to having a bright red, sunny, you know, a bright, cheery red Ferrari pop off the screen. And I'm going to look for them. And I'm like, where's the Ferraris? They blended in with the with the darker black cars. Um, yeah, they so, did. so on track, I thought it was a bad color. Off track, Stunning. Still didn't make any them any faster. No, well, you know, the commemorative race curse. I think we're going to have to start that because I think commemorative racing uh, liveries are bad. Well, it, it's, yeah, I guess it would be. I mean, we look at Williams, what was it, their 700th race when it, that was a pretty big disaster for them. We had, what, the 100th race for Jensen Button. That was pretty bad. I mean, and, and we've said for a while, is whenever there's one of these big celebratory events, yeah, the teams do a big deal. It's worth commemorating. But when they get on track, it's never good. No. It's never good. And it's really sad because it's a, such a big deal. But it's... But it never works out the way you hope it will. Yeah. The the Mercedes debacle of 2019. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. So... Actual news. And I, I, I got to start because last week I said that the, the from what we were hearing, it was starting to look un- increasingly unlikely that Sebastian Vettel was going to end up at Aston Martin for 2020. And you were wrong. wrong. <laughs> was wrong. And I, and, and I acknowledged that, that I was Could incorrect somebody- in that. Please mark the calendar because he has admitted that he was wrong. And it doesn't happen often. 
<laughs> anyway, so where we were saying it wasn't going to happen, and then what was it? Wednesday, late Wednesday night, we get the announcement from Sergio Perez. Yeah, better. He was um, not going to be continuing with the team for 2021. That was the first domino that fell. Correct. Not an announcement from the team, an announcement from Sergio. Yep. <clears throat> Which makes me wonder if that was how this was supposed to go down. You know, it's weird because Racing Point has always done social media very, very well. Mm-hmm. And... All of them have handled it very, very well. This really seemed like a divergence in that. So it really came across as like angry exes. It it did. Now, we have seen and we have heard that some teams do not handle these transitions, these announcements of these transitions, particularly well. No. Including stories of drivers basically finding out that they were being replaced because the team was holding a press conference to announce their new driver. <laughs> it, it's like they missed the memo, their page in the book that says, hey, we, before you hire the new guy, you should probably let the old guy know he's going. Yeah. Um, and work out a transition plan. <clears throat> I mean, seriously, we spend so much of our lives in big business talking transition planning. Um it's sometimes you you marvel that something that spends as much money as F1 spends, that they don't always act like a big business. Yeah. Now, so let's not bury the headline. Sebastian Vettel, had, Sebastian Vettel has been confirmed for the 2021 Aston Martin season in a fabulous, and I do have to say, I thought the picture of <laughs> the Aston Martin with the license plate, Seb AMF1, was pretty stellar. That that was genius to, to, to put that out there. Um, now, Seb has, has been commenting on this, and he freely admits that this has not been a straightforward decision. And um, he came very close to um, probably not so much, and, and most folks thought he, was, he would take a year off. He's saying that actually it was more likely that he would have retired outright. Wow. Um, and it was really taking and deciding what he wanted to do, whether or not he really wanted to remain in Formula One, but then also, and he makes it sound like he's got more information about the Concord Agreement and the terms around it and how it is going to affect the mid-pack teams. Mm. So what he said is it wasn't an easy call because the last weeks and months have been quite intense for me. It's different and a new situation for me to be in. And as I put out from day one, I felt like I wanted to remain in Formula One if there is something that really attracts. It was getting more and more clear the team's performances this year have been very encouraging. And I think even more than that is where the regulations are going into hopefully a more and more level playing field. I think it will be a lot of firsts and the first time for the team to be in a position to have probably the same money as other teams and show what they are capable of. So anything I can do to help, I am very excited about and I am looking forward to it. 
Things are coming in the right time and in terms of the announcement, it has not been a long time since it was final. Obviously, Sergio made the announcement last night and then I think it was only right to respond straight away. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I mean, I'm happy in in one way, honestly, and I know this is going to surprise our listening audience because I've always been very down on sub, um, overrated driver, you know, can't can't really function unless he's in the front of the pack. Um, I'm actually kind of happy that he's going to get to stay in Formula One. I really thought Ferrari did him dirty. Um, Ferrari treated him like they tend to treat the drivers they're casting off. Yes. I'll put it that way. Which historically, and I have said this, like I thought they treated Kimmy dirty. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that they have treated people dirty and I think they treated him dirty and I'm kind of glad he's going to get another year. I hope he gets a little bit of the, for lack of a better way of saying it, the, the Gasly effect, the, the, the something that says, look, I'm really not washed up because the problem is he hasn't performed for Ferrari like he performed for Red Bull. He hasn't, and they haven't given him the car. Particularly to do it. in the last two years, mm-hmm. he has not. And having Leclerc there to challenge him, and that was going to be the big question: was how would he handle one? Would Leclerc be able to consistently challenge him? And the answer apparently was yes. Uh, but the other was how would he handle that? Um, because I don't think he particularly handled it well when he was paired with Daniel Ricciardo. Um, Unfortunately, the other issues that were going on with the engine and the car superseded a lot of that. Um, but I don't think he handled it particularly well when he was not performing against Daniel Ricardo. Um, I do think that he is not driving at the same level and of the same quality that we have seen from him in the past, especially in his early years at Ferrari. He was driving better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I mean, the Aston Martin move aside, I, I think Sebastian Vettel's glory days of winning a world championship are over. Um, and even if he was headed into a top tier team, I don't think he's driving at that level. Honestly, I think even Valtteri is driving at a better level than he is. I agree. And I know it gets masked because of the car. There's car issues Mm -hmm. going on. But I think one of the things that we are missing with Vettel that we see when we look at a Leclerc, we look at a Max Verstappen, we look at a Lewis Hamilton. I mean, honestly, there's nothing that compares to a Lewis. But we see it even in some of the mid-pack drivers that I don't see in Vettel is there is a, a instinctive, hungry drive that these guys are able to put the car in specific spots on that grid that drive better than the performance of their vehicle. And mm-hmm. Vettel, to his discredit, does not drive the vehicle beyond its capabilities. He does when it's set up the way he likes. Because that's the it, other It's a thing. very narrow window of yeah, what he, he likes. He has a band of how he wants that car to be set up, 
with the level of oversteer and understeer. And, and I don't remember, I, I've heard exactly what it is that he likes about a car. Mm-hmm. When it is in that band, he drives it extremely well. And I suspect, and it may not happen next year, but it likely will happen for 2022, is I suspect he will get that car tuned to his liking as opposed to Lance's liking. And he will drive it stronger. I, I, I don't think that he will be challenging for titles. He may be challenging for podiums if the car is designed well. But, I, but there's one other piece, and, and that's where I'm really interested to see how this plays out, is Vettel, Seb really thrived in the culture and atmosphere of Red Bull. Mm-hmm. He re- and yes, some of that is because he had the backing of Christian Horner and he had the backing of Dietrich Manischitz and, and Helmut Marko. He had their backing, but the, the culture in Red Bull is fairly unique to the rest of the grid. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that have the loud music pumping out of their garage, especially when they're winning. They're the ones with the energy station and the the raucous parties in Monaco um, that are really a step above what VJ Mali used to have on his yacht, and and some of the other one step away from parts. rave. It, yeah, pretty close to that. Um, that was the team that was attracting a lot of the celebrities. If they weren't going to Ferrari, they were going to Red Bull. Um, that was a very different. You know, that party attitude was not at Ferrari. That's not Ferrari's culture. But what's so funny is, honestly, that's not Seb. He's the most private guy on the grid in so very many ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, how many years did it take for us to find out that he had children? Yeah. Um, Still not sure if he's married. No, he did get married. Oh, yeah. Okay. We did find that out. But I think we found out like two years after he got married. I mean, it's, it's that kind of... He's ridiculously private Schumacher level private and it so it's so weird that that was the culture that he really thrived in but I think what he thrives in is when the team is built around him yeah it's where I think that the thriving actually occurs now there's one thing that just hit me and I freely admit it just hit me one thing that we have not yet discussed about him moving to Racing Point, which will become Aston Martin, is he will get a Mercedes engine for the first time. Yep. Now, well, he will be on a Mercedes engine in a car that is essentially built... Last year's Mercedes. But built off of a very winning strategy. Mm-hmm. And even if they like undo some of the copying, remember the statement, you can't unlearn what you know. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be some evolution of the B team for Mercedes, which is what Daddy Stroll wanted. That's what Aston Martin is going to be. Now, the pundits out there that are all like, well, we'd love to see Vettel and Lewis compete on the same level. It's not the same level, but it's going to be dang similar. It it may be. It very well may be. And then you add to the to that as well you know we're seeing the mclarens 
nipping at everyone's heels mm-hmm. and they're going to be with Mercedes engine too. Correct. And they'll have Ricardo. Yeah. So we have, in theory, as we sit here in September of 2020, a looking ahead at what could shake up the grid a little bit in 2021. We're looking at three incredible drivers. Mm-hmm. All with the same engine. Now, different chassis, different aero, different other things that yeah, are I different. Mean, They're know, not the same car. I mean, l- l- let's be clear. I mean, if, if yes, the Williams has a, a Mercedes, Mercedes engine, engine too. And if we put Sebastian Vettel in the Williams, uh, he, he still wouldn't be challenging at the front. I mean... L- <laughs> so, yes, it, it is not a guarantee that just saying you have a Mercedes engine, you've got the keys to the kingdom. <clears throat> mm-hmm. But if you think about the fact that McLaren has started to get their arrow right, Racing Point is getting their arrow right, which is the, that's the dynamic duo right there. You got to have mm-hmm. the right power unit with the right arrow. Chasing and nipping at the heels of the top of the med pick, the best of the rest. You've got Ricardo, who is a scrappy driver. You've got Vettel, who is a proven winner. And you've got, you know, I, I think what we are looking, what we potentially would have would be a strong fight for second and third. I know. Well, I don't think that you're ever going to touch, you're not going to touch Lewis as long as Lewis stays at the top of his form. Well, it, it's even if Lewis decided, you know what, this year I've, I've met Schumacher and I'm calling it quits and they brought any other driver onto that team, Mercedes is still going to walk away with yeah. This yeah. year, you know, you look at that performance, you know, they could bring up George Russell and they're still going to do really, really well. Well, they are. They are. Um, Lewis will retire after he beats Schumacher's record. He is not walking away until he has eight. Well, that's, that's the question is, will he wait to just beat Schumacher's record or will he wait to do one year with the new rules? I don't know. I don't know if he'll do the new rules, but he absolutely. My prediction is we will we will see Lewis retire after he breaks that record. That's the one he's got his eye on, and he won't say it out loud because that's not the way Lewis is built. I don't watch the scores. I don't watch the numbers. Yeah, I'll believe you, but I'm telling you. Until Schumacher's seven world titles falls, Lewis isn't leaving. He's too close. So anyway. Oh, you want to keep moving forward? Yeah. You know, considering we're 20 minutes in and we're still two stories. And I want to talk about the race. So yeah. come on. <laughs> so Sergio Perez and, and, and his comments, on he is a bit ticked. Bitter X. So he said, nobody told me anything, but I already knew and figured out a couple of things. Final confirmation came yesterday. This was Thursday's comments. Final confirmation came yesterday. It's fine. You know what that means. It's, it's fine. fine. <laughs> Seven years with the team. I knew everything was has a beginning and also an end. We still have nine races to make, make each other proud. Um, he said that back in Spain... He said it was a matter of time until the speculation linking Vettel with his seat disappeared and that he was receiving feedback from the team that he would remain for 2021. 
<laughs> and that's probably why he's a little ticked off. Now, on the other hand, Otmar Safnauer says, um, he, he knew we were talking to Seb. <laughs> he knew these conversations were going on. Um, his manager was informed of the process all the way through. Um, it wasn't a clear decision, and that's a credit to him because he's done a great job. But he was aware of what was going on. What he didn't know because the decision wasn't made was what the definitive action was going to be. That's what he learned on, on Wednesday. And, you know, from that perspective, Sergio's right. He didn't know that he was being replaced until Wednesday. And Otmar just said, we didn't tell him he was going to be replaced until Wednesday. Yeah. So, well, see, both are, both statements are true. And, you know, the other garage. We, we, we have to unfortunately address this because, you know, obviously everybody's running around and going, well, you know, Sergio Perez is the one that, that saved this team. And the whole reason why um, Lawrence got the opportunity to buy the team in the first place was because of Sergio. And this is how you guys are paying him back. Mm-hmm. Is you're kicking them to the curb because Lance Lance's dad owns the team and dad's not going to fire his son. Well, Otmar says, um, no, really, no, that's 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 not what it was. Yet, and he acknowledges that that yes, Lance, dad owns the team and and but Lance has been with us a few years and he's a young driver. But when we were looking to make the change. It had to, to be Checo. It had to be because, to be che- because well, Lance is daddy's boy. Well, see, no, Otmar said that, that that's not the case. The, re- the reason why it had to be Checo, he said, there are options in his contract and those options didn't exist for, for Lance. Uh, he's in the ascendancy, enjoying his strongest year in the sport so far and sits fourth in the championship off the back of the podium and there's more, more potential to come. However, Sergio has all the outs, all the contract language that allows the team to exercise options to let him go. And none of that language exists in Lance's contract. Because he's daddy's boy. Well, I was going to say it possibly because it says that um, for as long as Lawrence owns the team... Lance isn't going to get fired. Until Lance doesn't want to race anymore, Lancey boy will get to race. (laughs) (laughs) Now, to be clear, at this point, not only has Lawrence Stroll bought his son a Formula One team for him to drive in, he's now also bought his son a four-time world champion to drive with. I know. Hey, Lawrence, I'm still adoptable. <laughs> I'm just saying, college degree, semi-successful, just want to be written in your will. That's all I ask. <laughs> I don't ask for much. I mean, we don't have to do Thanksgiving dinner or anything like that. I'm, you know, mostly not embarrassing in public events. So our next bit of rumors around drivers. Rumors. The, so we know that Haas will have two open seats next year. Correct. And we know that Haas will be returning, despite what we heard at the end of season two of Drive to Survive. Mm-hmm. Haas will be returning to the grid in 2021. 
Because they signed the Concord Agreement. They signed the Concord Agreement. They have committed to it, which means now they are actively answering the driver question. Right. And we are fairly certain that they are not happy with at least one, if not both, of those drivers. I'm pretty sure that both of them have been asked for the keys to the uh, uh, the, uh, employee lounge. Not yet. They still work for them. No, they're they're being asked, like, you do not get the priority bathroom any longer. (laughs) (laughs) There's a naughty step with your name on it. Um, we, you know, we've seen Mercedes put their drivers on the naughty step. I'm having a feeling that Haas's naughty step is outside. Yeah. In the rain. So, according to Gunther Steiner, they are talking to at least 10 drivers. I know, my phone rang. seats. Um, no, that was the, the spam person asking about the, your, if you. They were telling you that, that, you know, this is their final call that they've made eight times. Their final for the eighth time uh, about renewing the warranty on your car. That was not it. I swear it was Gunther. No, it was about renewing the warranty on your car that you got rid of eight years ago. I I swear the man had a deep accent. He was, he cussed. I know it was Gunther. I just that, know it no, was Gunther. That, that was the Nigerian prince. And I know you keep telling me that when the prince of Nigeria calls, you answer the phone <laughs> because he's a prince. Well, duh, royalty. Shut <laughs> <laughs> up. Anyway. Okay, to be clear, let's be very, very honest. I do not answer the phone when the Nigerian prince calls. Okay. But Gunther Steiner keeps calling me and saying that we hear that you would be able to perform as well, if not better, than Roman Grosjean in a Formula One car. No. Um, So the, the latest names that we have heard rolling around, potentially linked to seats at Haas. Obvious now, Sergio Perez. They'd be... and. Even Otmar says that, well, you know, we're speaking to everybody. There's not a lot of seats. Otmar? Not not Otmar. um, Gunther? Gunther. Says that we're speaking to everybody. There's not a lot of seats that works in our favor. And I have a lot of respect for Sergio. Mm. But we're talking to everybody. But he's a hell of a nice guy. (laughs) Yeah, he, he did not say hell of a nice guy. He said he has a lot of respect for him. Okay. So the the rumor that that seems to be starting to pick pick up steam would be that Haas's driver lineup could potentially be a Sergio Perez, Nico Hulkenberg pairing. See, I think that would have some promise because they could work well together. They could complement each other. They were paired together for quite a while at Force India. See? Um, I think that's that's definitely an interesting combination. But, but if you want existing drivers... That are on the grid. Wasn't there somebody else that's been ousted? Um, so existing drivers you could be looking at. Um, Gasly. Gasly was Ga- the other one. Yeah, and Gasly has not been ousted. Has He's been. not been ousted yet, but and, and it could be potentially. The The rumor that, that's been floating around Gasly right now, and I wasn't going to jump to Gasly just yet, but we might as well mention him. Sorry. The, the rumor that has been floating around Gasly is possibly a call back up to Red Bull, given that you know, that Alexander Albin has been struggling 
as much as he has been. He's certainly been underperforming and arguably, in some cases, Gasly in his short stint at Red Bull outperformed Alex in his current stint at Red Bull. Mm -hmm. Now, Alex just had a third place podium and picked up the pieces when Max was out of the race quickly, which could be good for him. I think if there's sustained performance, that could quell those rumors. But if you're Pierre Gasly and you're looking them, and, and this is the, the, the challenge that, that I think Gasly has at this point, is that y- you, you clearly have some talent. Mm-hmm. Some level of talent is there. Where can you possibly move to? Well, and who's going to give you a ride that is not a second fiddle job? Because going back up on the teeter-totter to go back up to the top team of Red Bull, no matter who takes that other seat, whether you're Alex Albon or Pierre Gasly or whoever gets stuck in that seat, you are number two. You are guaranteed to be number two. It yep. is all about Max, and Max is going. It was Vettel, and now it's Max. Yeah. And so, if you're not willing to play second fiddle and supporting role, and Gasly has not been in the past. Mm-hmm. When when Gasly was up at Red Bull, he, his whole thing was, "This is about me, and I am here to challenge for the lead and challenge for the win. I am not here to play second fiddle to Max Verstappen." And that was part of the reason why he fell. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's not an unusual story. It's Weber to Vettel, Ricardo to Vettel, <laughs> Ricardo and, and, to Max. And, and that's been why there's, there's the, the, the other rumor around Sergio, and, and this one I think is less credible, is, well, maybe... Alex would get replaced by Sergio Perez. Not going to happen. Yeah, and, and and I just... Red Bull has not brought a driver to that team that has not come out of their driver program since David Cothard and Mark Webber. Exactly. I mean, everybody else that they have put on that team has come through their driver program, and they've been very insistent that they have that program and they're going to bring drivers through it. Now... We do know that in terms of qualified drivers in the program and who are eligible to get super licenses and get graduated, there's not a lot right now. Mm-hmm. It's very slim pickings, but really? Well, and that's the thing is they that's part of the benefit of being in the Red Bull program is you have such a there's such a, a very definite line they will only choose from that program so you know that you're going to get the eyeballs mm-hmm. you're not guaranteed those eyeballs if you're in the mercedes driving program you're not guaranteed those eyeballs if you are in any other person's young driving driver program but red bull has not just the commitment on paper but the the history that says we grow our own yep and i think that's one of the things that makes the team dynamic different within red bull I think so. It's because they do indoctrinate them so young. So Franz Toast at AlphaTauri um, says that he expects a decision within the next six weeks um, around what Red Bull is going to do and what Toro Rosso is going, or not Toro Rosso, AlphaTauri is going to do with their driver lineup. 
They'll always be Toro Rosso to us. They will. Um, and to Sebastian Vettel as well, who after Pierre Gasly's victory, and, and this is as much as there's a lot not to like about Sebastian, there's also some elements about him that you really do have to like. Mm-hmm. Um, not the least of which is his, his love of British comedy. True. Um, but the other thing was after Pierre Gasly's win in Monza last weekend, um, one of the many phone calls that Pierre got, Pierre got was from Sebastian Vettel welcoming him to a very, very exclusive club <laughs> of which there are now only two members. Yes. Pierre and Sebastian, the sole members of the Toro Rosso Winners Club. Exactly. The Toro Rosso Monza Winners Club. (laughs) (laughs) Even narrower. (laughs) And I believe it's the first F1 win on Toro Rosso at Monza for both of them. I mean, it's eerie if you really think about it. It's Mm kind of eerie. The only difference being that Sebastian was on his way up and, and Pierre Gasly is in round two at at the junior team after failing on his first time up. Right. And that's the question of would your second time, what could Red Bull offer that would make his second time up different? Yeah. So. So over to Williams. Uh, they have named Simon Roberts as their acting uh, team principal for right now. Um, They're still in a transition period. Now, who is Simon Roberts? I was wondering. I was hoping you were going to tell me. I was hoping you would tell me. Um, He joined the team earlier this year as managing director of F1 operations, having previously been McLaren's operations chief and also had a short spell at Force Indian 2009, um, he started his role initially at the beginning of June. Okay. Um, again, he's acting. We don't know where this is going to go from there. There's obviously a lot of flux with the team and everything that's happening. We'll see. More to come. But they've got somebody who's at least steering the wheel right now. Well, we knew somebody was. Yeah. So, um, Andreas Seidel over at McLaren. He says that the biggest challenge that he has identified the biggest challenge the team has right now compared to the the leading teams. Ron Dennis. No. (laughs) Ron is dead to them. They've changed the temperature gauge at the the factory. He is not just gone. They have wiped him from the memory. Oh, wow. They did the, uh, the men in black flashy thing. Men in Black flashy thing, 1984 revisionist history. Um, that they that they're been at war with East Asia. They've always been at war with East Asia. They've never had, Ron Dennis is never part of the team. He is not part of the team. We don't know who Ron Dennis is. We forgot how to spell his name. All the whole thing. Two ends, four ends. Yes. <laughs> don't remember how many ends. Ron who? Almost like Martin Whitmarsh. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> anyway. Ouch. Andreas Seidel says that the the biggest hurdle that the team has, the biggest handicap that the team has, is their outdated infrastructure. 
Oh, that, okay. that that's what he said. Now, one of the things that he specifically says, and he calls out, and and this I could see him him mentioning is they don't have their own wind tunnel, right? They use the Toyota wind tunnel in Cologne. Okay. Now they want to build a wind tunnel that's on their list of things to do. Now, why why they're building a wind t- tunnel? When we get to the next story, you kind of going to scratch your head about it. But one of the things they said is they've got to upgrade the wind tunnel. Um, their simulator is way out of date, despite what we saw in, in McLaren tuned years ago. Or maybe that was the last time it was updated was when we had McLaren tuned. It's really sad that they don't still do the tuned. Do you think that like they didn't get the software updates? Like maybe they don't have the the current tracks or some some of it. It's may like be. my GPS that's yeah. not that's out of date. Some of it is probably software, but more around how the it handles and how they simulate stuff. But he also said that even their the computational fluid dynamics, the CFD suite that they use to figure out the aerodynamics in the car, even that's out. And they've got to get that updated and sorted out and clean that mess up. Once they do that, then they will seriously start making ground. Oh, okay. That's what he says is the problem. So they need new software and boffins to run it. Yeah. But uh, according to Sky News this week, they're selling the plant. Okay, so they're going to sell the plant so that they can build a new plant with new infrastructure. Okay, and let's remember, this is not the shed off the side road to to Silverstone. This is the McLaren Technology Center in Woking. The spaceship building. Okay, so maybe they're, they're going to sell the property and they're going to like completely rebuild and, and start from ground zero with something that's more flexible and bigger design. and and The spaceship building designed by Sir Norman Foster. One of the so greatest exactly, modern architects. So exactly who buys the McLaren Technology Center. I mean, because if you think about it, there's only 10 teams in F1 and all 10 of them have their own factories already. So there's like not a demand for an abandoned factory. Well, see, here's the thing. And and I, I don't understand. I, I, I've encountered these deals before and I really don't understand the logic. What they want to do, what they're looking for is to sell the factory and the land and then lease it back. And I don't understand why you do that. Raise capital. Right. It's but like at the co- But at the cost of losing an asset that you will likely never get back. Well, you won't ever get it back, but you will raise capital to improve the, the business. It's like putting a mortgage on something. I mean, you could do it that way, but then you, and add, you add a life. I would see that way you, be- add a liability but if it's already mortgaged you can't mortgage a mortgage and 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 that may be it is that they've already got this outstanding mortgage and they can't do a second mortgage but it just okay so you're gonna sell the property and then lease it back which means you're still paying for the property Mm -hmm. that you now no longer own correct Uh, yeah but if you need capital to make improvements, that's a way to raise capital. 
I mean, that's... Yeah. I, I get... Okay, first, you are not a master of high finance. I'm not. And secondly, it's not like... You or I would sell our house because this is the ma- this is the math mm-hmm. you're doing in your head. Yeah. We have a mortgage on our house. If we needed cash, we would not sell our house and then rent it back. We would sell our house and move. It it just deals like this. It seems like it's really only favorable for the guy who buys the property and then gets the continuous income stream from the lease. Well. It could be long-term favorable for that. But keep in mind, he now has an improved property with one, basically one customer. Yeah. So, yeah, if McLaren goes completely under and no longer needs the the property, then he's got this huge liability on his hands because he's got a giant mortgage for a giant piece of property with a giant modern architect building that somebody's probably going to have a really big problem with if he tears down but how many uses for an f1 factory are there well keep in mind it's not just an f1 factory it is also a bespoke sports car factory true but anyway mclaren is selling the factory so that they can lease it back yeah i anyway um so the teams have been warned. In case somebody thought that the way that they could get around the cost cap that is coming for next year, mm-hmm. it is coming, it is happening. That the way you could, especially since they have frozen the rules for a year and teams are, need to figure out when they stop spending on the current car and maintaining the current car and move their spending to 2022, they've been told by the FIA that you can't get around the cost cap this year or going into next year by buying up lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of spares this year while you still have unlimited spending and not running any of them so that you have them all for next year and you don't have to buy them next year. That's not a way to get around the cost cap. The cost cap. How are they going to regulate that? Uh, potentially the same way they're going to regulate the cost cap. Honor system? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> To quote Christian Horner, think bigger than your team. Yeah, no, it, it's more the you know we, they will cheat in any way they possibly think they can get away with. But the FIA has been, has warned the teams that if we see truckloads of parts showing up at your plant, you know where you used to get one truck a week and now you're getting eight, we're gonna notice. It's hospitality. They're feeding their crew. Yeah. There's nothing to see here. Stop looking. Except if the truck keeps coming from the Honda factory. Anyway. Formula One says after last Sunday's race that they are looking to revisit the reverse grid idea. <sighs> here's the here's what you really need to know about this. And, and Ross Braun in particular, he, he is the one who was calling it, this out. He says that Monza was, and, and this was in his um, personal column that he put up on the Formula One page the day after Monza. He said, Monza was a candidate for a reverse grid sprint race when we were considering testing the format this year. Unfortunately, we could not move forward with it, but the concept is still something we in the FIA want to work through in the, current, in the coming months and discuss with the teams for next year. 
We believe that yesterday's race showed the excitement a mixed-up pack can deliver, and with next year's cars remaining the same as this year, our fans could be treated to the similar drama that we saw this weekend at Monza. Of course, with a reverse grid sprint race, teams will set up their cars differently. Right now, Mercedes set up their cars to achieve the fastest lap and then to control the race from the front. If they know they have to overtake, they will have to change that approach. We will continue to evaluate new formats with the aim of improving the show, but always maintaining the formula, the, the DNA of Formula One. So talks are, are picking up over the next couple of weeks about what race formats will look like. We, we know you don't like it, and, and I've got mixed feelings about the concept. I'm not positive is the right answer. And I do agree that, and actually, I, so what I think Formula One is trying to fix, and I was thinking about this the other day, in the changing of the qualifying that they did a couple of years ago, that disaster, and I won't trot out the audio, but the, the changing of the qualifying in the... It's the same thing that they tried to address with, with taking away the engine modes. It's the same thing that they're, they're trying to address with the sprint races. It's not that they have a problem with qualifying. And they know that they don't have a problem with qualifying. Their problem is the fact that qualifying is set up so that the fastest car with the fastest driver at that session gets pole position. And the problem they have is that the fastest car and the fastest driver at every qualifying session for the last couple of years tends to be one of two people. And they're trying to figure out how to fix that. It's not that qualifying is bad. It's that they don't like the fact that the fastest, the way qualifying is supposed to work is exactly how it's working. But you only have one or two drivers that are the fastest drivers in the fastest cars at that session. I get, and and I think you're right, I get that because I'm a Lewis fan, I'm predisposed to being opposed to anything that would hamper Lewis, as much as if we were talking about the boy who is a Vettel fan, he would get all kinds of upset and angry if we talked about getting bored when Vettel was winning all the world championships, mm-hmm. that he was constantly in the front of the pack. So I get, I, I get the the concept of we're the statement is a reaction to we're tired of seeing the same people in the front of the pack. I get that. My problem with the reverse grid sprint race concept is now twofold. And one of them we explored a little bit last week, which is I have a fundamental issue with stripping away because at no other time during that weekend do we see the drivers drive flat out. And we've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how we get to experience, even if it is for a single lap, to see what the beauty of man and machine working together to drive flat out looks like. So the, the, but the argument here, is that in a reverse grid sprint race, you have that. Because it's a shorter race, it is, in theory, set up so that the race lasts the life of the tires. So there's no need to conserve tires. 
there's no need to conserve fuel because with the fuel flow guidelines, a sprint race, you're not talking a full race, you're talking a sprint race. There's no need to conserve fuel through, through the race. And you're turning around and you're taking the fastest drivers and by putting them in the back, you are, they still have to drive flat out, but they have to work harder to be successful in the race because they have to show their skills as a driver and how, in this case, you're not winning the race by leading the whole time. You're winning the race by displaying your race craft the, is the argument. I, I, I get the argument. Mm-hmm. However, every one of the technical regulations has come down that has destroyed the ability for cars to pass well. So you yeah. can't get within a certain distance without having dirty air and the dirty air causes problems with passing. If you don't start with a, solving that problem to not basically tie both hands behind these drivers' backs and say, here, you're stuck in the back of the grid. You have 20 laps to to get to the front of the grid. You may be the most fantastic driver in the world, but if you can't, with the air disturbances, if you can't get through the grid because you can't pass because the cars aren't built to allow passing, what you're doing is exposing what the real problem could possibly be, which is we have cars that can't race with and, each other. And, and remember, going into next year, we're removing downforce. Exactly. Which potentially could make it even harder because of the disturbed air. So my proposal, this this is my proposal, and then we'll loop back into the whole reverse grid thing. What I really want to see, especially now that we have a cost cap, mm-hmm. and that that's that a lot of these restrictions have been put in place on the technical side in the name of saving costs. Well, we have a cost cap now. We don't need to worry about that. So now, what I would rather the FIA did and Formula One did is they looked at the teams and they said, okay, see this this big book of technical regulations? It's out the window. Your technical regulations that you have to meet are all around the safety cell and the protection of the driver. You have to have the halo. You have to have the crash structure that can withstand whatever G's of force. You have to have all of the things that, that we would expect from a safety perspective. Your car also has to fit within a box that is this wide by this long. That way we make sure that you can fit your cars in the grid box and you know there's no 12-foot car on a, on a track to prevent passing. It has to fit in that box. Would you have a minimum size? No. And actually, I would even argue so much as the current size of the cars should be cut in half from a width perspective. To make passing better. Mm-hmm. You, you need to make sure that... And, and whatever that benchmark is, that your car can make it around whatever the benchmark track is above X minimum cutoff time. Those are your restrictions. Tire size? It's not part of the restrictions. 
So you're going to have 10 teams all... And actually, you probably do need to have restrictions around wheels and tires only because you need, Pirelli can't make different tires for different teams. So, okay, standardization around that. And maybe a couple of other standard, you know, the, the control modules for the, the transmissions and, and, and those bits and pieces. But other than that, do what you want. You want to run a flexi wing? Run a flexi wing. You want to run adaptive suspension? Run adaptive suspension. You want to run six wheels instead of three? Go for it. Instead of three. Or, or instead of four? <laughs> go for it. As long as you're, you you meet the safety standards, as long as you hit the minimum performance targets, as long as you hit the safety, you know, the, the size standards, do whatever you want. You want the Coanda exhaust? It's yours. Blown diffusers? Done. You know what I have a problem with that? First time a top tier team gets it wrong and they bump into that cost cap. That's the problem with the cost cap is you get well, something yeah. wrong, you can't fix it. And that's that's where I think that you have to, if, you, if you're going to go down that path, I get it. You have X number of dollars, build a Spend car. however you want. However you want. Make it safe. It has to be safe. It has to meet certain requirements. Mm-hmm. The driver has to live. We do want living drivers. And it's got to have these very, very basic minimum standards. Everybody's got to use the same tires. Everybody's got to use... You've got to put somewhere in the system a fuel flow regulator. And, you know, if we're still using DRS zones, we got to have... you got to have a combination of those things. But basic things. I get that. I'm kind of down with that idea. Because you know me, I'm a big proponent of the six-wheel Tyrrell. Mm-hmm. The thing is, I do believe that in the season, there should be an allowance made for a team that if you are X number, if you're in the bottom third of the pack, okay, so you get a, a, a grant to be able to solve your problem. Okay. I, and, and, I'll, and I'll go for that of... You know the 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 bottom two teams, performance wise, at the midpoint of the season, get to. You know, well, actually, it, so so the the problem with that is if they don't you have get, the money to start with. Well, even if you you hit that threshold at the the mid season break, and you're allowed to re engineer, rescope, or whatever. You're still a half season down that you've got to rethink, the, and and it's no different from what we're seeing with Ferrari right now. Exactly. So really, that it doesn't matter. You get it wrong, you get it wrong. But you get it wrong, you wind up being Williams for three years. That's that's the problem with the cost cap. Even without the cost cap, though, you get it wrong. You you could be Williams for three years. You could be Ferrari for the next two years. Also, also possible. But Ferrari cheated. That's the reason why they're in the situation <laughs> that they're in. So. All things. Now, I need. I had two points. I have one more problem with the reverse grid. You said you had two points. I had two points. I talked about one, and then you diverted us into, I have the solution. I want to go back to my other problem. Okay. Very simply. I hate the engine mode rule. Well, well, I agree with that. That needs to go out the door, too. That, okay. That, that, that's <laughs> moronic. Uh, I mean... And if you're going to put a reverse grid together... I get Ross Braun's point about they're going to set the car up 
to be able to pass and do things mm-hmm. like that. Give them their engine modes back. And, and my understanding, I mean, okay, yes, you've taken away party mode and, and fine. But again, let's remember, even without party mode, even the teams that didn't have party mode, when they didn't have, because I think everyone's got it now, when they didn't have, they were still running different modes. Right. To preserve the engines. Well, I think, so it sounds like, and, and I guess it was like a four-page directive that came out but it sounds like you can turn the engine down in a race but if you do you have to notify the FIA that you've done it and then you can't turn it back up right right so understand how that's going to work in, in in real life you're what halfway through the race you're running ahead I'm going to turn my engine down now you've told everybody in the in the group that you're running but but we've seen that happen i mean we've seen several of the teams i mean red bull they've done it or where they were supposed to do it and they didn't Seb. Mm-hmm. um but mercedes they've done monaco is a perfect example monaco we've had multiple times that they've turned those engines down because nobody's moving well yeah but those were the times when they could turn them back up if they needed it in the current rule structure yeah because no, they're that. not supposed to change the engine mode. They can turn the engine down. So now, all right, I'm two-thirds of the way through the race. I'm I'm comfortably winning. I'm going to turn my engine down to preserve the life. And that's what it's got to be mm-hmm. for is preserving life. I'm going to turn my engine down to preserve the life. Now I get on the radio and tell the FIA, which means I've told everybody. Well, no, that's not what it is. That's not how you tell the FIA. The team tells the drivers, just like they always have, turn the engine down. They don't come on the radio and say, we're telling the FIA. They pick up the phone, they call Michael Mossy, and they say, we're turning the engine down. Here's the mode. And then, the minute somebody finds out that you've turned your engine down. But it doesn't work that way. Again, we've, we've seen this play, this, that exact scenario play out multiple races throughout the year. When the teams are doing it, nobody's close to them. And even when they are, they can't pass them anyway, even with the engines turned down. That's a non, it's, it's a non-issue. It really is. I know it, it, your bigger concern is something that doesn't happen often of. You've turned it down, but you, you still might need to go back to it. We just haven't seen anybody actually have a need to go back to it once they've turned the engines down. Well, you have that happen if you turn it because you're comfortably in the lead. You turn it down and then there's a safety car. Or there's an incident that has occurred. Yeah. That's when that happens. The unexpected happens. Yeah, I get it. You're cruising out in front. If the expected happens, you don't have to turn it back up. But when the unexpected happens, now you're handicapped. So nobody's going to be willing to do that in today's state. Give them their engine modes back. And if you're going to put them in the back of the grid because they're good and because they have the best car, give them their engine modes. Well, that's the other thing. If you're going to do reverse grids, let's scrap this engine mode idea. It's stupid. I don't like it to begin with. So. So, back to what we were actually talking about. (laughs) What stopped this last time was one team. Mm -hmm. One team, Mercedes cast the vote against it that meant that we didn't get reverse grids this year however the rules have changed a little bit mm-hmm. thanks to the concord agreement the governance structure has has flopped a little so there are 
28, no, I'm sorry. There are 30 votes total that can be one way or the other. 10 of those votes belong to the FIA and F1. Okay. The teams themselves have um, 10 votes. One vote per team, 10 teams. Yeah, got that. Wait, that doesn't even make sense. Because it says a supermajority is reached. You have to have a supermajority. Supermajority is reached with 28 votes. Both the FIA hold 10 votes with the 10 teams then each holding a single vote. So there's eight votes that are missing there. Or is that Pirelli probably gets a vote? Autosport may have an issue here. Some maths are not working. Read that to me again. So we know the teams get one vote each. That's 10 votes. Got that. So it doesn't need to be a unanimous vote like like previous years. It's a supermajority. And according to Autosport, a supermajority is reached with 28 votes. Okay. Both FIA and F1 hold 10 votes. Oh, I'm okay. I got it. That's not 10 votes between the FIA and F1. So F1 has 10 votes. The FIA has 10 votes. That's 20 votes. And the teams have 10. Have 10. So that's 30 votes. If two teams vote no, it still passes. Got it. That's what it was. Okay. Math (laughs) is hard. We had to read it again and again and again and again. Yes, math is hard. Now, once again, Toto Wolf is standing up against the plan. Mm-hmm. Um, his feeling is that the series is not world is not WWE and is not a reality show. Um, he says that we shouldn't mess with the format. We see racing series that have tried to change formats that has historically been understood by the fans. NASCAR and the chase comes to my mind, and he doesn't think that Formula One should be messing around. This is not because he has a Mercedes bias, he says. On the contrary, I like variability and unpredictability. And we will have races that will be very different, such as the Monza race. But nobody wants a winner that has started from a reverse grid. I don't think we should be designing freak results where it is almost impossible to overtake just because we believe that the pecking order should be a different one. This is a meritocracy. This is a sport where best man and best machine wins. And this is not WWE where the outcome is completely random. If you want to do random, let's make it a show. But I think the core DNA of the sport is being a sport and then an entertainment platform. It's not a show. It's not a reality show. And it's not Big Brother. And I don't think we should be going there. And this goes back to my point of what F1 is truly trying to fix isn't qualifying. It's Mercedes. It's the fact that the fastest car and the fastest driver tends to be the same and has been for years. And no matter what artificial construct you come up with to try and prevent that, that's the whole point of this. That's a meritocracy. It's for the fastest car and the fastest driver at the event to win. So one question I have with you to you. Mm-hmm. We had four straight years of Vettel winning in Red Bull. Mm-hmm. Fastest car, 
fastest driver. Things didn't change. It no, was four- actually, it was not fastest car. It was fastest driver, most consistent driver. But those years, that um, that Red Bull was not the fastest car. Okay. But it was the fastest driver. But, okay, even still, I remember in the Vettel years, mm-hmm. we spoke ad nauseum about how dull it was that it was always Vettel at the front of the grid. And there was a whole controversy of if Vettel could even bother to win if he wasn't out front. That that was the, mm-hmm. the key to his success was Saturday qualifying so that he could be out front and then mm-hmm. just take off. What I do not recall from those years is the obsessiveness of the Formula One system, granted it was the prior administration, to, quote, fix Vettel taking off with every one of the races and the wins. Well, there there was the whole Bernie Eccleston trying to improve the show. Mm-hmm. And the high degradation tires and, and things like that. But the other thing that you need to remember, though, and, and this, is, this is where the difference is, is, okay, so the first year that we started watching Formula One was 2012. Yes. And that season started off with eight different winners in the first eight races. Yes. Now, yes, what was it, the last... Seven races, eight races. I don't. I don't think it was nine. But the 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 last half of the season, Sebastian Vettel won every single race. Mm-hmm. But it started again. Eight different races. Eight different drivers winning that race, and it wasn't just a well. Okay, this time Ferrari won, and this time Red Bull won, and this time Ferrari won, and this time Red Bull won. It was, we had McLarens on the podium. We had Mercedes on the podium. We had Red Bull on the podium. We had, I think, well, we had Williams on the podium that year because Pastor Maldonado won a race. We saw Sauber drivers on the podium. The podiums were changing. And it wasn't always a guarantee that, well, it's another weekend. We're going to see that that podium is going to be two teams and nobody else is going to make it up there. Mm-hmm. You know, we were seeing Ferraris win. Fernando Alonso, the year that, that, that we watched it, that title was super, super close. So, the, and, and, and that's, I think, the bigger difference is that the title fights for Several, not all of those years, but several of those years was much tighter. Okay. I just was wondering if this is actually Mercedes hate or... I think some of it is more Lewis hate than Mercedes hate, to be honest with you. That's really sad. I, I say it's sad for a reason. It Part of it is, if there's anybody that's going to bring new blood into watching F1... Lewis is your is one of your guys. Yeah. He's got a strong social media presence. He's a great spokesperson for the sport. And he's a great story, too. 
And he's got his fingers in so much that's outside of the bubble that is F1. He has an attractive audience Mm -hmm. to bring in that Lewis hate seems counterintuitive to me. There's a lot of reasons for it, and I won't get into that. But there is one other driver who is building up if... Actually, I don't think it's probably quite as big, but he's building up a similar following for a totally different reason. Lando Norris. Well, okay, Lando has got a great personality. He's got a great personality, but he's another very big presence in new media, social media. Mm -hmm. The big difference is that Lando's big area unlike lewis who's all about instagram and 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 facebook lando's on twitch lando is a huge draw on twitch and that video stream i know nothing i am so old yeah i know nothing about twitch anyway so you thought i was gonna interrupt you again didn't yeah i was waiting for that (laughs) because because we're gonna keep moving here i i'm trying to buckle in so I, I know you've been working on the business plan for starting a Formula One team. Well, I did, but my crayons um, and my construction paper supply kind of ran out. Well, when you go and restart that, you need to add an extra $200 million dollars. Under the terms of the new con- of the Concord Agreement that was just signed, new teams coming into the sport, if a team was to come into the sport, they are required to pay into a fund, into the prize fund, $200 million. That money will then be divided amongst the existing teams in Formula One. Is that to offset the potential loss? Would they no longer have to wait a three-year waiting period for prize money or out of the media fund is that not that i know of it is it is an offset on the prize fund it is not an offset for the new team it is an offset for the existing teams because of the greater dividend or the greater division of the money coming out of that funds between the teams by adding a team, you dilute the, that division of money. So the $200 million is intended to, as an offset for diluting that money. So each team gets $10 million. Or well, no, each team gets $20 million. There's 10 teams on the grid, $200 million. Each team would get $10 million that coming from the new team. But the question is, is that in anticipation that the new team would suck off $10 million per team Yes, as an effect. So then maybe the offset to that is that they don't have a three-year prize fund waiting period. Yeah, but still, they're only getting $10 million. Or $20 million, if that was that. No, but all the teams are getting $20 million, except the new team. And I know whether or not that that's waiving that three years that you get no money from Formula One, I don't know. They haven't disclosed that. 
But yeah, if you're coming in, you have to pay an additional $200 million above and beyond what you may have had to pay before. Well, I, I understand that. It's, it's, the question becomes, what's the math on it? Is the, if, for example, the deal is that every team that comes to Formula One will essentially dilute the prize fund by $20 million per team, thus it offsets that. So it's like in the first year, I'm diluting the, the prize fund by a little bit. So therefore, or by a little bit, I mean, that should tell you what a little bit is. Hmm. I'm paying into it to offset my dilution for that first year then the expectation would be that the new team would be siphoning off $200 million off the prize fund because it's $20 million per team. Not $20 million is their piece of the prize fund. So I think that it sounds like a really, it, it sounds like a well, huge number and it sounds like it's a really crappy deal, but I'm wondering what the back-end math is. So, so we don't know what the back-end math what what the argument that the team principals are using and the reason why they are saying that this is the right way to go, they're all defending this idea, is they see it as basically you are setting a base value for a valuation for a Formula One team. Mm-hmm. You are saying that a Formula One team at a minimum, at its worst, should be valued at no less than $200 million. Exactly. And Doralton's capital, uh, Doralton Capital's purchase of Williams for 183 says that they've got a great deal. Mm-hmm. Is that, That's the argument that they have, is that by, by turning around and saying that if you're going to buy in, it's a minimum of $200 million to buy in, you're saying that the value of a Formula One team, the worst team on the grid, is $200 million. I completely understand that. And that that justifies my back-end math. Okay. Well, that's what they're saying. So, driver, other driver news. Driver movements. So, we know Lewis is coming to the end of his contract this year. Um, contract negotiations have not started as of yet. Although Lewis says he's happy where he is and wants to stay and he's good and all of that. Um, Mercedes says that they're looking for the larger gaps in this year's schedule to start those negotiations. Larger gaps, you mean more than a few days? Yeah, pretty much. Um, Some rumors swirling around Mercedes. So there's a rumor swirling around that in the next couple of weeks that uh, Toto Wolf will be moving into a new role within Mercedes, within the organization. We've talked about this, haven't we? Well, we, we mentioned that, you know, he said that it, it's taking a toll on him and, and that's having an impact. Um, we've heard rumors that is part of the, the negotiation deal that there may be something coming. Th- those rumors seem to be getting a little louder that something may be coming for Toto. But the other rumor that came out, and it actually came from Eddie Jordan, which I I think means that there's about a 50% chance that this is true. Okay. Um, 
I mean, he predicted what three years ago that Mercedes was leaving the sport, and it hasn't happened. Well, well, well that's the thing is Eddie's predictions are either spot on or so ridiculously off as you wonder where he got it from. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I I don't know, but according to Eddie Jordan, um, he says that. Mercedes sponsor Ineos, um, and and it's Ineos and their CEO are getting ready to launch a seven hundred million pound buyout of the Mercedes team. That they're going to buy Mercedes out of their share of the team. That seems odd. It does seem very odd. Um, I don't know if that that's necessarily going to happen. Um, there is talk that it would be more likely that um, they may buy a share in the team, mm. but to outright buy out Mercedes. Um, so Eddie is actually saying that the team would be renamed Ineos, um, but would re- retain the Brackley facility. Interesting. I, 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 do, I don't know. I, I, I don't think that this part is likely, but I've also kind of got concerns about Ineos. So if you're not familiar with who they are, they are primarily a petrochemical company. Okay. And and, and general chemicals, um, global. Um, but I guess this year in an attempt to diversify their brand, they are customizing, they've introduced a line of customized Range Rovers. <laughs> okay. And I've heard rumblings about other odd diversity type business moves from them. And I can't find anything on their website, but I've heard rumblings about this stuff. And the more I hear that kind of stuff, the more I keep thinking Enron. Because mm. that's what en- that, that, that was Enron's big downfall is they were a, a big petrochemical company that got this brilliant idea of super diversifying the organization and made all these ridiculous investments and then cooked their books around all these ridiculous investments. And, you know, they were buying up broadband and they were buying up all these other things that made no sense for a petrochemical company to be involved in. And Ineos has certainly been increasing their presence in sports. Hmm. The Oracle World Cup, they've got yeah. a presence in, and a couple. It just, it seems odd. Well, I think we should have to watch that one just to see what starts happening, especially in light of Toto talking about shaking changes. Could there be some connections between those two? Yeah. Obviously, in our role of F1 reporting, we will watch that very closely. Yeah. So we had this weekend. Ferrari's 1,000th Grand Prix and commemorative train wreck. (laughs) Which we have gone into why commemorative colors are bad. Yeah. Maybe that's what we call it is is the commemorative train wreck. Yes. Um, You know, I like Mugello as a circuit. Mm -hmm. I think it was pretty cool that we went there. Um, I think... Honestly, in a lot of ways, I thought what we got out of this race 
was what we expected to get out of Azerbaijan three years ago. This was a race of carnage, and everybody was predicting in Azerbaijan that first race, especially after the GP2 race, Mm -hmm. everyone was predicting absolute carnage at that track, and we didn't get it that year. No, we didn't, even though you still call it the Mario Grand Prix. Um, Well, that's because it's the castle. It was when they had to take a measuring tape to measure that one corner yeah. because it is barely, barely wider than the F1 car. At one point, I honestly said, I thought that everyone who finished this race was going to get points. And, you know, it was pretty close to that. I mean, we had 11 finishers in this race. 11. I thought it was 12. Oh, you may be right. It may be 12. Um, but two red flags mm-hmm. and okay. My favorite part, one of my favorite parts of this race was that during all the red flag periods, they obviously had to keep opening their book of what random yeah. fact can we find? <laughs> oh, wow. How far back has it been since we've had double red flags in a race? How far back has it been since this or that? How about that? This was the 45th unique name for a F1 race. Yes. I think that's when you that lost was the it. most obscure that I thought they could. I mean, I, I really, I, I I understood the this is the you know the the last time we had a, a double red flag was this long ago. We you know we don't get a lot of red flags and have two of them in one race and I I, I get pulling out those statistics, but the forty fifth <laughs> unique, unique race. <laughs> wow. Alrighty. I mean, 2020 has dealt us a bunch of blows, but 45th unique named. There we go. You know, actually, I'm, I'm going to divert us for a little bit because in all the ramp up that we had to this race, because it is the, the thousandth race for Ferrari and, and all the retrospectives about Ferrari and um, Ted Kravitz piece on Ferrari. To, was it T- Ted Kravitz or David Croft? Um I think it was David Croft. His piece on Ferrari this morning was actually, it was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, th- there was obviously a lot of talk about Michael Schumacher and the situation with them. And given how long it has been with that race and how much that family prizes its privacy, I have a theory about what's going on. Especially you've got... Um, Jean Todd, who was saying, yeah, I was just with Michael last week and all of that. What I true, especially in light of all the retrospectives and all the, the highlight reels that were being shown and all of that, my theory is that Michael's condition is a lot better than everybody thinks it is, but not nearly as good as he'd like it to be comfortable with it being and that he publicly wants to be seen as being he may still be in a wheelchair he may still have problems speaking things like that but i think for the pride of the family and for michael's pride his preference is to be remembered for all of the things that they keep trotting out and how healthy he was and how vibrant he was and all of those bits and pieces. And the family is determined that that is the memory of 
Michael Schumacher that everybody has. And because he is not at that level because of the accident, he does not want to have any appearances. They don't want to give any updates because they know that with without anything else, everybody will fall back on the strong stuff and fall back on those highlights. So you're saying that you you think that he's trying to avoid the Christopher Reeve syndrome? To some extent, yeah. Interesting theory, but we have no, I mean, obviously there's we, no... We have no idea. No idea. Um, no, I thought it, it was, a, there were some really great retrospectives. There was really great um, information. The Ferrari legacy within F1 is phenomenal and should be respected. I mean, it it's, goes back a thousand Grand Prix. So there's a lot to it. It should be respected, but also taken with a grain of salt. Well, yeah. There's a lot of romanticism to it also. That That's the bigger thing. Yes, it should be respected. I, respected. I don't think it necessarily deserves the romanticism that it gets. You know, this whole idea of Ferrari without F1 is unthinkable and F1 without Ferrari is unthinkable. And it's like, I, I, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I truly think that if Ferrari walked away from Formula One and just said, we're, we're out of open wheel racing, we're not doing this, Formula One would still exist. I think it would. Honestly, I think Ferrari would suffer from it more than F1 would at this point. Yeah. In this particular moment in time. Now, if Ferrari started winning again or showing well, it could be a different dynamic. But right now, we're on basically a year of not just disappointing but embarrassing ferrari standards so the 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 other question that i have and back to some of the this romanticism around ferrari is i I don't understand how and, and and there's not a lot of brands who have this kind of position but i don't understand how ferrari has become so embedded in what Italy is and the blood of what Italy is. And in many ways, when people think of Italy, they think Ferrari. Or when they think of Ferrari, they think Italy. Mm-hmm. You know, it, to, to some extent, and the, honestly, the only other brand that I can think of that has that level of tie into their country is Cunard. It's the only other brand of, when, when, when you think of Cunard, you think of England. Mm. And I can't think of another brand out there. Maybe McDonald's. Maybe mm. Coke. I mean, I think that there's probably a few more American brands than, and maybe it's our own uh, centricism. But that I think foreigners would associate as being uniquely or as tied to American culture, like we think of Ferrari being Italian. But the very DNA of Ferrari is Italian. Yeah. You know, that's the thing that I think you can't miss. And you can't help but see it when they do win. Any Italian wins, and you see them all out there singing in tears and singing. And 
I mean, look the, at Monza. Yeah, Monza last year actually. Exactly. Put Charles Leclerc on a podium at Monza, and you get people crying because it's Ferrari won at Monza. Exactly. So Mugello. Yes. Owned by Ferrari. Yes. And I gotta say, I I, I actually thought, and I go round and round. On, on one hand, yeah, we had a very exciting race from the fact that there were a lot of events that occurred, but the actual racing wasn't great. Oh, there were a couple of good ones. There were a couple of good ones, but you know, when you're five, ten laps to the end of the race, and the focus is on the last place car. Okay, but it was Russell trying it, to it get was a Russell point. And it His was first F one point. Th- there was that, but but again, we, we we didn't care about what was going on in the front. We didn't even care about what was going on at that point at most of the mid pack. The only thing that anybody cared about in that entire race was what was happening at the end of the at the tail end of that pack. Or, and you know there was the discussion about whether or not to bring uh, what was it Charles Leclerc in for the undercut. Mm-hmm. And Ted Kravitz was saying everything that everybody else was saying. Yes, do it, do it, do it, do it. <laughs> Only from that perspective, maybe it'll mix something up because nothing's happening. <laughs> you know, I think one of the, when we do our year in perspective, in retrospective for 2020, and we get past talking about the no fans and the COVID and the, 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 and not in the delay and the crazy season that we've had where we've been at the same track two weekends in a row and mm-hmm. yada, yada. I think one of the things that we will ultimately talk about is that this has been a season of first 10 laps of a race, a lot of things happened. Mm-hmm. And then once the race settled down, it's as if you could just put a giant pause button at the end of. 10, 15 laps and call the race. So, and and I wasn't originally going to go there. So BBC, Five Live, when they opened up their podcast this week, they talked about, you know, we're a couple of days out from Monza and that was an exciting race. Everyone was, you know, there was so (laughs) much that happened, all of that stuff. Now that you've had some time to go back and think about it in retrospective, what do you think? You know, was this a great race? Was this... And Jolian Palmer goes, well, actually, in retrospective, no. Mm-hmm. And everyone was like, what the heck are you talking about? And Jolian made a very good point. After the, what, first five laps, the first lap, there were no passes. Mm-hmm. Zero. All of the excitement occurred because of accidents, because of the red flag and that mixing stuff up. But... After the first lap, after the restart, the first lap at the start of the race, after that, there were no passes. There was no action at all. And from that perspective, if you really think about it, yeah, the racing kind of sucks. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we want to see the fighting for position. We want to see, even if there's no passes, we want to see people challenging. And we, we didn't see it for much of this race. We didn't see it for much of Monza. Yeah, we had a lot of events, and holy crap, those were dramatic crashes, especially the second one, which we'll talk about in a little bit. 
But the on-track action actually has been kind of lacking the last two races. Which I think if you think about it, what's the common factor between these two races? High down Accidents. Well, no. What's the common factor about high the track? High speed. It's the high speed tracks. Yeah. High speed in particular. And, and Mugello, actually not just high speed. Low down force. No, because I don't think there was the, the low down force in Mugello, but high speed and older tracks. Mm-hmm. Non-Tilky design tracks. Well, we don't like Tilky design tracks. We have issues with Tilky designs. We have issues. Trust me. Some nothing. of them are good. Austin is good in Turkey. But Turkey was the first one that Tilky designed. And everyone thinks Turkey's a great track. We'll know in a couple of weeks. Excellent. And Austin's a good track. Two bigger runoffs. Does have the, the, the big runoffs, but we've had some good races there. Had some stinkers, but we've had some good races. So, okay, the, the it was an interesting start. A little confused. Yeah. Well, we couldn't tell. Who hit who? Well, well, not just who hit who, but at the start of that race, we couldn't even tell who, who was in a lead. Because <laughs> we both thought that Lewis had the great start. No, you thought Lewis had the great start. You didn't realize that the you had them swapped on the grid in your mind. You okay. had Lewis on the other side, and so you saw Botas's great start, and you're like, wait, what? And well, I'm, I'm used to the car on the outside sitting in pole, and that wasn't what it was here. Right. And so you had swapped them in your mind, and so you were confused. I will say I was not. I kept going, I don't understand what your problem is. Botas got a great start. Lewis didn't. This is how we are. But okay, so they swapped at the start, and then there was mayhem. Max Verstappen, and just falling back. Mm -hmm. And he got sandwiched, really the best way to describe it. And we had first round of ugly... What, by turn two? Yeah, three turns into the race. They safety car and then red flagged it. Um, no, that was safety car. Oh, that was the safety we, we, car. We stayed under safety car. And we were under safety car for a while. It was like five, six laps that we were under safety car. And then we had the restart. Right. And so here, here's the things to understand about this restart. And, and it's any restart. Is... Lights go out on the safety car. Safety car tends to try and pull away. And drivers, the, the, the leading driver, the driver immediate behind the safety car, in this case, Valtteri Bottas, sets the pace. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that decide when, and, and as long as that driver does not pass the safety car, they can go as fast or as slow as they want, but they set the pace. Correct. And the grid has to respond to that. So Valter, that, well, there were a couple of things. One was, I guess, the safety car turned the lights off late. And that, that's both Lewis and Valtteri are complaining about this, that it, it's this new thing that, and, and they say it's to, to make it more exciting or to make it look more exciting. The safety car is turning its lights off later. Um, and it's when they turn their lights off is when they decide what speed they're going to go and where they're going to adjust. But regardless of when that happens, the racing doesn't start until the safety car is in and the and whatever car you're in, it's not even the lead car, whatever car you're in, 
passes the control line where the green flag section starts. Mm -hmm. So in this case, the safety car came in and it was a long run because of the, the pit straight being the way it is. It was a long run from when the safety car came in to the start finish line, which was the control line. Valtteri backed up the pack and everybody in the front of the pack knew exactly what was going on that Valtteri was deliberately backing up the pack and they weren't they could not would not should not start racing until they crossed the control line mm -hmm. on the other hand the cars in the back half of the grid they decided that nope oh, i can see the green the, the green flag the front must be coming up close to the control line and some number of cars in the pack in the back of the pack took off Exactly. Now, they should not have accelerated until they got past the control line. And they did not. So when that group accelerated and then all of a sudden started popping out around cars and saw that, crap, everybody else is running slow because they hadn't caught up to the control line yet, we had mayhem. <laughs> really, it's the only way to describe it. Exactly. So... For starters, um, despite what Roman Grosjean said in, in his reaction that it was stupid, the person up at the front, for going so slow, um, Valtteri and Lewis and everybody else at the front, but Valtteri in particular, said um, this, this was within the rules. Mm -hmm. what, what happened? In, so Valtteri said, we're allowed to race from the control line, which has been there for a while, I think. The difference this year is the safety car. They're putting the lights off quite late, so you can build a gap pretty late on. Of course, when you're in a lead, you try to maximize your chances, and I'm not at all to blame for that. Everyone can look at everything they want for it. I was doing consistent speed until I went. Yes, I went late, but we started racing from the control line, not before that. The guys who crashed because of that, they can look in the mirror. There's no point whining about it. <laughs> um, now, as for... The, the current procedures, Valtteri said, I don't know who decides what's happening with the safety cars, but they're trying to make the show better by turning the lights later so you can't build a gap early and go to the corner before the race starts. Maybe it's time to think that if that's right and safe to do so. And even, Val, even Lewis says it's absolutely not Valtteri's fault at all. It's the decision makers. They're obviously trying to make it more exciting, but ultimately today you've seen they put people at risk, so perhaps they need to rethink that. They've been moving the switching off of the safety car lights later and later, and we're out there fighting for position, especially when you earned a position like Valtteri earned a position of being in the lead. They are trying to make it more exciting, but today was probably a little bit over the limits. Botas did what anyone would do. And even Alex Albin said it was obvious that Valtteri would leave it so late before accelerating. They all knew this was coming in the front of the grid. Yeah. So in response to the big incident, three drivers were called to the stewards immediately. Um, so that was Magnussen, Latifi, and Daniel Kvyat. And after meeting with them, considering the onboard footage and telemetry available, the race stewards at Mugello decided to hand 12 drivers a warning. Whoa. Now, there's... 10 driver there, there's 20 drivers on the grid and 12 of them got a warning for this okay so who were the eight that didn't 
Well, I, I, how about the eight that, that got it? The 12. That's the list I had. Or the 12 that got it. Okay. Because that's the list I had. So the drivers that got warnings were Magnuson, Caveat, Latifi, Giovinazzi, Sainz, Albin, Stroll, Ricardo, Perez, Norris, Ocon, and Russell. Wow. Not Lewis, not Botas. Right. And obviously not Max. Well, he was already out. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Vettel, I think, was... A, a, yeah, Vettel was off the list. Vettel wasn't on the list. Um, Leclerc. Leclerc was not on the list. That's really kind of about it. <laughs> so what came from the stewards? The stewards conclude that the root cause of this incident was the inconsistent application of throttle and brake from the final corner along the pit straight by the above drivers. The stewards acknowledge the challenges the location of the control line presents at this circuit and the desire of drivers to take advantage of the restart. However, this incident demonstrates the need for caution to be exercised in a restart situation and note that there was an extreme concertina effect which dramatically increased as it moved down the field. We also note that some drivers might have avoided being involved in the incident had they not followed directly behind the car in front. And I found that was interesting because all the Sky Sports folks were saying, well, we wouldn't have this problem if they ran in single file. <laughs> yeah. By doing so, they effectively blocked off all visibility of what was happening immediately in front of the preceding car. A warning has been imposed as it is the view of the stewards that no one driver was wholly or predominantly to blame. Now, to be clear, a warning... While it is part of the penalty system, has no bearing on a driver's super license, unlike a reprimand. So this is not points on their license. Okay. But the stewards agreed that Valtteri complied with regulations and he had the right under the regulations to dictate the pace. And there was a lot of talk about uh, Carlos Sainz walking off the grid holding his, his, uh, his hand um, apparently he did suffer some bruising, but they expect that he will be okay. Good. I'm glad to hear that. I didn't want him to get hurt. Yeah. Nobody should be hurt. But that was interesting. Crazy. Um, it was a crazy race in that stuff. Not because there was great passing and once everybody calmed down. Yeah. It was, you know, you had a little bit of will he, won't he, Ricardo at the front. Maybe we'll get a podium. Kind of hoping that, you know, uh, there'd be a honey badger tattoo happening. Yeah. I'm, I'm, so the, the two things that I'm bummed about, I'm, I'm bummed that Ricardo could not hold on to that position. Um, and I'm bummed that Russell had the, the crummy start coming out of the restart. Because otherwise, he would have had a point. Yeah. I was really... I mean, he was running an eighth at one point. Mm -hmm. And I was... I had really hoped that we were going to see the first points for Williams. I really was. Yeah. So, bummed about that. So, looking ahead. Looking and I, ahead. And I know we're still a few weeks away. But we have word... If, if you are going to be in uh, the central portion of Italy... It won't be us because they don't accept our passports right now. Yeah, it won't, won't be us. But if you will be in central Italy, um, you can pick up a ticket for Imola. They are, this is actually going to be the closest, and, and still the numbers are going to be down, but the closest that we will probably see to a normal race weekend in terms of 
who will be allowed in. So um, they're planning on selling 13,000 tickets, and they've got approval to sell 13,000 tickets. Um, in addition to the tickets being put on sale to the public, they're hoping to uh, also bring in 500 Paddock Club guests, which I think is the first time that Paddock Club has been uh, reopened this season, but also 500 guests from local sponsors and 300 more from the local or from the regional authority. Wow. Now, the big thing is that Imolent, you know, only has like three weeks to sell all these tickets. And keep in mind, it's a two-day weekend. Right. It's not a full three days. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. Uh, but we, we should see more folks at Imola. I'm, and I, I'm hoping that Imola is an exciting race. I hope it is. And I hope it's successful for them because, I mean, seriously, these people have wanted to come back on the calendar for so long. They've been trying for so long. Um, I mean, it took a global pandemic for them to get back on the calendar. So I want it to work out for them. I want it to be a good race. I want better racing. Um, but we've got here, we've got a couple of racetracks kind of back to back here that we haven't seen before or haven't seen recently. I mean, we've got Portugal, we've got Emila, we've got Turkey, we've got things happening. So as a reminder, just to where the schedule is, and, and normally we would know this, <laughs> but but we would know this off the top of our heads, but we, we don't anymore because the schedule is so screwy. So we're off next week, which is good because Le Mans is next week, mm-hmm. which just, we're September and Le Mans. It just doesn't feel right. I know. I get it, but it doesn't feel right. Le, Le Mans is next weekend. Um, along the same lines, I believe uh, IndyCar this week is doing a, this weekend is doing a double header at Mid Ohio. Yes, <laughs> yes, they have a double. Another header. weird one, but anyway, um, Formula One returns uh, with qualifying for Russia on the twenty sixth, um, and then October tenth we go to Nurburgring. Yep, we go to Nurburgring. I have to double check, but that's Nurburgring. Uh, from there, on the 24th, we head off to Portugal. Um, then we go back to Italy again on the 31st, on Halloween, for Imola. Yep. We're going to round this out pretty soon. I mean, we've got a couple of like every other week deals, and then we start having a back-to-backs again. Yeah. Um, to get us through October, and then... November. No, November. We I don't have the schedule out all the way through November because F one hasn't updated their website yet. Uh, but that's n- Turkey, Bahrain, and Abu Dhabi. Well, no, Abu Dhabi is the in December. Y- yeah, it, it's Turkey two in, in Bahrain, then Abu Dhabi. Um, the the dates, yeah, the dates are out there, but they haven't put the the sessions. Once they publish when the sessions are, I'll update the race calendar. So those of you who are subscribing to the race calendar will be able to get that. It's a bonus that you offer. Yes. It's free service. It's a free service. Very good. All right. So reminders, we are taking the weekend off next weekend. No, you're taking the weekend off next weekend. We won't be recording because you're taking the weekend off next weekend. You're capable of doing the show without me. You've told me that many times. (laughs) 
<laughs> you remind me of that often. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so it's up to you. But uh, I will not be present next weekend. So, and then we come back for the next race, which you said was... You were not paying attention no, at I, all. I, no, I, I was... You, you were not. I was, it's, it's briefly. Russia. It's Russia. Oh, then, you, were, you, were, you were paying attention briefly. <laughs> well, I... You were paying attention briefly. <laughs> it was a moment. <laughs> No, I couldn't remember what it was and then Nürburgring. That was what was in my head is I had a mental block on the fact that we were going to Russia because I kept wanting to make it Nürburgring. Okay. And on that note, we should call it a show. Yeah. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. A little break? Okay. Whew.